Good morning, Greg. Nothing manic about the weather. It's <laughs> just cold. Yeah. Yeah, it's cold and it's uh, it's getting to that point now. Usually it's about it's around mid-February where I start to feel the uh, this kind of desperate itch to to be rid of winter. The I think the only thing that's kind of kept kept me sane throughout this though is that I've been trying to get out and go for walks regularly. Usually I'm fairly sedentary during the winter. Last year, you remember I my car died mid-January, I guess, and I started walking to work. Otherwise, Every winter before that, I kind of just hibernate, and then I go crazy because I get the cabin fever. Well, it's time to get out on the uh, on the river maybe tomorrow, as we may be on our way to minus six, minus four, depending on the forecast you look at. Adriana, I think, is saying that we uh, could uh, find our way up to minus six tomorrow. So, uh Probably some wind <laughs> accompanying that. Yes. Very warm high, though. So uh, one direction on the river, you might not have to skate at all. <laughs> Maybe take a sail with you. <laughs> and then in the other direction, it might be uh, some serious uh, hard work. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. But, uh, yeah, if you forgot to plug in your car last night, run outside, do it now. If you got to get going by 8 o'clock, it might help a tiny little bit. Uh, we're looking uh, at uh, all sorts of Olympic activity this morning. Canada doing extremely well, including their first gold medal. Mm-hmm. Caitlin Laws and John Morris, as Jeff mentioned in the news, uh, found their way and made their way to the gold medal match in the doubles curling. And that will go tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock our time. Very exciting. I know there's at least one location well, where you will be able to gather with a group of people, St. Vitale Curling Club. They're going to be hosting a group, so you can go and watch it en masse tomorrow. I don't know uh, if that would be, uh, if there would be a better place to see that. And what to, go. That's tomorrow morning? Tomorrow morning, our time. Oh, okay. At 5 a.m. Yeah. So If you need an excuse to not go to work. Yes. There you go. Yeah. I mean, the, the matches go pretty quick, so it'll probably be done by 7. <laughs> so you make it to work by, by 8 for sure. So we will uh, run down all those things uh, throughout the day. Uh, We've got a story about Lord Selkirk Park and its rejuvenation. There's a short film that's been made about that. We'll we'll discuss it as well. But I guess the big story over the weekend was the verdict in the Gerald Stanley murder trial in Saskatchewan, the murder of, uh, well, of um, Colton Bushy. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, been full of controversy, lots of people weighing in, including the Prime Minister, and some folks are not happy about that. Yeah, they, there's there's question as to whether or not politicians should be weighing in on uh, the, on the judiciary. And this is certainly a, a contentious issue. This was a, reportedly an all-white jury. And Bushy shot back of the head. And uh, the not guilty verdict comes in after 13 hours of deliberation. And uh, we actually got a text message here at 680 CJOB early Saturday morning uh, from someone identifying themselves as Indigenous saying this, ver- and I don't remember the exact wording, but it was along the lines of, I want to go out today and and lay waste to the first white person I see. Boy, oh boy. So this is, uh, this is a, a troublesome, problematic 
divisive for sure. Yeah. And so we will try and get as many points of view on this throughout the morning as we can, including yours at 204-780-6868. Lots of questions to be asked, lots of questions to be answered, including this whole idea of what should a jury look like? You know, we hear this idea of a jury of one's peers. Does that mean it should be reflective of the community one lives in or reflective of the individual who is on trial. People also, Brett, bringing up the idea that one should be able, a man should be able to protect his castle, a man or a woman, his property, his or her property. What are the laws there? And does this create a new precedent in our country in terms of your ability, my ability, anyone's ability to do just that? Yeah, it's uh, we'll, we'll hopefully have that conversation uh, throughout the morning. We are going to check in with uh, Saskatoon Global News reporter Ryan Kessler, a former uh, colleague of ours here at CJOB, later this morning to discuss the verdict. Uh, there is some of the audio uh, from the family in North Battleford after the there was a pro- well, there were rallies across Canada Saturday afternoon. One of them was held right here at the Forks, uh, but the emotional one in North Battleford where Colton's family was, including his mother, and uh, hearing the raw emotion, anger, rage on display, the family is hoping to speak with the prime minister. Um, and then that, that ties back to the conversation about whether or not the prime minister should be speaking at all on this. So, right. yeah, this is a story that even though the, the verdict is in and uh, it's found to, uh, it was the second degree murder trial and not found not guilty of that. Um, even though the trial is finished, this conversation is long from being over. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, we just had something break uh, in terms of this. The Tories are formally accusing the Prime Minister of political interference after his comments on the Bushy case. The federal Conservatives are accusing Justin Trudeau of political interference after the Prime Minister responded to the acquittal of a white farmer and the death of a young Indigenous man by saying the criminal justice system has to do better and... Uh, Trudeau went on to say, I'm not going to comment on the process that led to this point today, but I am going to say we have come to this point as a country far too many times. I'm Greg. He's Brett. Lots of text messages at 780-6868, including one listener questioning why we're talking about the emotional side of this verdict in the in the Colton Bushy uh, case here. Well, that's because that's that's become the story, right, Brett, mm-hmm. is the fact that uh, the Prime Minister, the Justice Minister of Canada have reacted, which is, A, very unusual. The Conservative Party is saying, should they be doing it, period. So that's a big part of the story right now. The emotional reaction, reaction of the Bushy family, uh, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people across the country altogether. There are lots of non-Indigenous people who are upset about this case and how it uh, turned out and the decision of the jury. It's not just Indigenous Canadians that are upset about how this has been handled. And we are trying to get down to some of the legal questions that, that I think abound for many people, including what was... What was Stanley's right to have that gun, to be brandishing it in the first place? You know, he called it an accident. Well, should he have been holding it for any reason at any time, whether it was on his personal property or not? And the idea that justice has been served is a text message we've received more than four or five times already this morning. A lot of people feeling as though this group of kids was up to no good 
and uh, they got what they deserved. Yeah, the, the text message that uh, came in regarding the gun laws, somebody says, is it not illegal to store a loaded gun of any type in your home, let, around, let alone wandering around your property with a loaded uh, handgun? And I, you know, one of my friends, I have, I've mentioned this before in, uh, in jest, saying that if there were to be some sort of apocalyptic event that I know exactly where I'm going, it's to my friend's place who has all the guns. But in all jokes aside, I don't think he's allowed to have ammunition on his property. So um, I'll have to double check with him and see if we can get some answers as to what the uh, the laws are regarding uh, guns in this country in relation to even ha- having the ability to have a loaded gun, as this listener pointed out. Yeah, so there are other questions, other pieces to this puzzle that Canadians are asking themselves today and have been asking themselves since Saturday, since this verdict was announced. And the other question that I have personally, uh, I know Jeff Courier and I had this discussion in the newsroom yesterday when I was here for a little bit, and uh, Jeff was getting ready for his show today, the whole idea of what does a jury of one's peers, what does that exactly does that mean? Is that an American saying? Is that a, a, a Canadian value? Where does that all come from? What are the jur- What does the jury supposed to look like? And race is a big question, a big conversation surrounding this, and it's very apparent in our text messages and the reaction to it. In the meantime, an Alberta man convicted in the death of his toddler will no longer be a featured speaker at a National Health and Wellness Expo after a public backlash. Global News' Kim Smith has more on this story. No, at some point truth will prevail, but right now we're in a major battle. That's Albertan David Steffen in a Facebook Live rant Sunday afternoon. It's in response to a decision by the Wellness Expo to cancel his upcoming speaking events. We came to a mutual agreement that it would be in his best interest to not be here anymore. Steffen and his wife were convicted in 2016 of failing to provide the necessaries of life to their son Ezekiel. The one-and-a-half-year-old died from bacterial meningitis. A Lethbridge courtroom heard the couple treated their son with natural remedies instead of taking him to the doctor. The conviction was appealed and is expected to be heard before the Supreme Court of Canada. It's not my position to judge him and I don't think it's any of our position to judge him. I think that that his family went through a lot of hardships. Steffen was scheduled as one of the keynote speakers at events in Saskatoon, Winnipeg, Calgary and Edmonton. On Sunday, Sobeys pulled its sponsorship, saying it couldn't support the decision to host Stefan as a speaker. Flamin Fitness also followed suit. It is frustrating to see very legitimate organizations and companies uh, like Sobeys, for example, supporting this. Uh, to their credit, you know, they when they saw this co- controversy unfold, they pulled their support. Timothy Caulfield, an expert in health law and science policy, says having Stefan as a speaker sends a specific message. It really does legitimize his point of view, right? I, I, this is looks like it's a big event. It's a, uh, an event that's supposed to be about health and wellness. Uh, and you have this discredited individual uh, presenting his perspective. Stefan says he's done 30 public presentations in the past 13 months with few controversies. He calls this cancellation sad. We don't have the ability to connect with new individuals that are looking for hope. Kim Smith, Global News. Thank you very much, Kim Smith, and thank you, uh, CJOB listeners, answering some questions about the legal or legality of Gun storage and gun am- or an ammunition in this country. We're already getting a bunch of texts. We were positing whether or not it's even you're even allowed to have ammo. And uh, here's a text message: ammunition and firearms must be stored separately. Uh, that's one text. Uh, another one says, "My dad is a retired hunter. 
or guns had to be locked up at all times without ammunition. So. Right, and trigger locks are supposed to be mandatory uh, from what we're gathering as well. But this is why we're looking to speak to an expert on this part of the law, because this is part of the conversation. This is part of the discussion that people are having today. And, you know, the whole idea of whether or not it's legal to have a gun on your property that's loaded is part of the discussion. But as soon as I posed that question out loud, Brett, we got a text message. Yeah, so is robbing people. Yep. And the idea that uh, Bushi and his friends were really, they were, they were up to no good and admitted to doing so. But my question back is, whose job is it to, to and pardon the word, execute just, justice? Yeah, and uh, this, regardless of uh, how one feels, many are saying that he that the trial ended, and that's the justice system. It ended in uh, not guilty, that he was acquitted of second-degree murder. Calgary Mayor Nahid uh, Nenshi is in South Korea right now to do some research to help determine whether or not his city should put in a bid to host the Winter Olympics in 2026. We're ready to have coffee and talk about whether or not you'd want to attend the Olympics if they were in Calgary. Should Calgary be going down this road? But first, let's get more on this with Global News reporter Reed Feist. Nahanenshi says there have always been two questions the city needs answered before it bids for the 2026 Winter Olympics. Now he has clarity on at least one of them. Could Calgary host the Games? We always knew the answer was yes, but being here, the answer is yes, yes, yes. We absolutely have the ability to do it. But the second, perhaps more important question is should we? And should we now? The answers to those questions still aren't known. Nenshi says meetings with the IOC and organizers this week have helped build relationships of trust. Provincial and federal officials have also been here. Nenshi feels the IOC is honest and showing it wants reform in the bidding process. Now he'll return to Calgary where city council there will have to make a decision before the end of June if it will proceed with the games that could cost $4.6 billion. Certainly now we have a lot more information to present uh, both to the politicians and to the public about it. And that may be no easy task with many in Calgary and other parts of Canada uneasy about how big the bill will be for taxpayers. There are other cities interested in the games as well, some in Switzerland, Sweden and Japan. But many believe Calgary is the front runner if it wants to try and repeat its success from 1988. Reed Feist, Global News, Kangyang, South Korea. Thank you very much, Reed. So, yeah, $4.6 billion dollars. For the idea of having the Olympics in Calgary once again. So let's have coffee and talk about whether or not you'd want to attend the Olympics if Calgary hosted. Now, Greg, I actually want to start with you before we get to Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, Shannon Vidal, and Behind the Glass Jerry, because I know that you have uh, always, you've been, you've mentioned this before, that you would like to see it not just be a single, a single city bid, right? I think we're seeing in the last uh, handful of, of bids and lack of bids is indicating that this is an enterprise too large for a lot of communities, communities that traditionally and cities that would traditionally be automatic to bid on Winter Olympic Games and Summer Olympic Games. And many are just walking away at the notion of investing that kind of energy that kind of money into a massive event like this. And I floated the idea since 2016, the Summer Games in Brazil. Is it time for the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, to welcome or even encourage the idea of multiple city bids for games like this? And how, I guess the word fairness here, Calgary just hosted the games in 1988. Of course, that's kind of a generation ago. 
but why shouldn't a city like Winnipeg or Edmonton get the opportunity to be to be in on this? If there was if there is genuine opportunity, if there's a genuine benefit, an investment of close to five billion dollars, and you know that number will grow, why shouldn't cities that are geographically more or less in the same area as Calgary be allowed to participate in this? I think they should. Kelly, you're are you? What do you think about that? Uh, well, I, I just don't know about Winnipeg uh, having the facilities to be able to be part of that. Uh, but, you know, with the Calgary bid, they are going to have some of the skiing events at Whistler. I mean, the IOC is so desperate for the 2026 Winter Games that they're pretty much, I mean, they went as far as to say, hey, the Saddle Dome's okay, you can play there. Yeah, and that is an aging facility. So, you know, a couple of years ago, the IOC would have said, well, you're going to need a new arena before you even think about this. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying, yeah, you know, that's fine. So they're far more accommodating. So maybe Winnipeg could host some events that we would uh, be able to. That we have facilities for. That that the the facilities would be there for. I would say this. uh, My wife and I went down to the Olympics in Vancouver in 2010. And we didn't go to any events, but we just went into the downtown area just to experience the atmosphere. I would highly recommend that to anybody if you have the opportunity to do so. It, it's it, it, That was one off the bucket list for sure. Yeah, you got to think that Winnipeg could host, uh, you know, we obviously we couldn't do downhill skiing or something like that, no, but we but could certainly do curling or hockey. Yeah, I think we could handle the curling. I think okay. the curling would be ideal, right? Yeah. And, and it would be a, a good homage to, yeah, to Winnipeg's history our, as a yeah, hockey, curling capital of the. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not suggesting that Winnipeg be a, a primary location, yeah, yeah. but a satellite location for one or two events. Mm-hmm. Make it a regional thing versus Calgary taking on this five billion dollar project and getting all the benefit from it as well. Are crumbling road moguls a thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're always adding new events, There you go. I like, I like the way you're thinking. Yeah, I like everything you say about spreading it out too, except the only thing I don't, I like, I do like when it's sort of all centralized and you and you have like these podium moments where the podium's right. sort of in one spot and you got, yeah. oh, some skiers are on there now and then some skaters are coming up next and then some curlers are coming up next. And I mean, already they do sort of spread it out across some venues, but there, there is something about the the coziness of it too, for to all be in one central location. And if they are all in one location, if it were to just be Calgary, Chandelier Vidal, would you want to attend the Olympics? It's not that Calgary's not that far. Calgary seems so much closer than Vancouver for some reason. <laughs> and I have friends in Calgary, so I would probably go just just like Kelly said, just to experience it once in my life. Um, but as to like, you know, could Winnipeg possibly? have some consider Olympic consideration. Well, I don't know. There's no reason why, I guess, uh, we can't get together with some neighboring communities and, and put in a bid. I mean, in a few years, the IOC could be have lo- even more lowered standards. And, right. You know, we could uh, be acceptable. <laughs> Drop down the window. <laughs> we are acceptable now. And Winnipeg doesn't rise they lower. No. That's, that's <laughs> nice. Hopefully no one's taking uh, what we're saying out of that at all. I just, I th- I think the time has come to take the burden off of a city of a million, on almost a million and a half people like Calgary. Yeah, it's a good-sized community, but it's a sizable investment, and there's federal money involved here, and why shouldn't more than one community benefit? 
Yeah, well, I can think of one reason, because if everyone's all in one spot, I can avoid that one spot. <laughs> so, Jerry, this is a personal thing. You just simply want nothing to do with such a large crowd. Exactly. I mean, there's way too many people. That's just such a madhouse. That that would just drive me nuts. So then it would, spreading it out across various communities would be a good thing, then? Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, technically, I think it would be because you wouldn't have so many people all in one location. I mean, if, if if you were to spread it out, then you could go to an event in a satellite location and not have to deal with those huge crowds. I think that would be a great idea. Less disruptive to one community so, uh, over those two or three weeks as well. So, Greg, are you suggesting, like, putting it across Canada or, well, like, I, I suggested in 2016 that... that Canada as a country should vie for a summer games. Toronto has been in the conversation in the past. I think it's perfectly obvious the appetite for Toronto to host a summer games that has come and gone. But I think if you combine what Edmonton's got in terms of facility for track and field, what Winnipeg might have for soccer and field hockey and wrestling and volleyball, combine all the cities, there are very few facilities you would have to build from scratch. That's true. And that would make it very economical in an overall sense versus one community. Look at Pyeongchang. They built this $100 million temporary 35,000 seat stadium because they have no use for this stadium after the games are gone. Well, guess what? We have a multitude of stadiums across the country that wouldn't have to be built as temporary structures because they're used for other things. And you know what else we have? We have snow. We can, it's pretty much guaranteed we're going to have, we're going to keep having snow here. And I know a few months ago there was a an article that came out talking about the cities that could host the Winter Olympics down the road are going to decrease because of lack of snow. So, you know, we got you covered. <laughs> that, list of, that list of possibilities is shrinking as well. Yeah, wouldn't you know what the one year when Winnipeg would have the Olympics. <laughs> We'd have a year like this. We'd have this. a green Christmas. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Emily Vidal, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and Behind the Glass, Jerry. Enough! We're going to fight back! That ain't no freak accident! Gerald Stanley's a freak accident! Shouldn't have been barred! The murderer! Yes, he's a murderer! That is Debbie Baptiste, mother of Colton Bushy. About 100 protesters gathered in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, Saturday afternoon after Friday night's not guilty plea against Gerald Stanley. A number of rallies were held across Canada, including right here in Winnipeg. Rally was held at the Forks on Saturday after a farmer was acquitted in the shooting death of the young Indigenous man. Gerald Stanley found not guilty of second-degree murder in the August 2016 confrontation that left 22-year-old Colton Bushy dead. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is facing heavy criticism from the Conservatives after weighing in on the acquittal. Prime Minister responded to the verdict saying the criminal justice system has to do better. Conservative Indigenous Affairs critic Kathy McLeod took to Twitter to first express condolences to the family and then to warn that the judicial process must unfold without political interference. Alvin Baptiste, Colton Bushy's uncle, was one of the first to react outside the courtroom in Battleford, Saskatchewan. How First Nations are treated in the justice system is not right. A white jury came out with a verdict of not guilty of Gerald Stanley, who shot and killed my nephew. This is how they treat us First Nations people. It is not right. Something has to be done about this. The government, Justin Trudeau, we asked you 
to give us in the indigenous people justice. And of course, as you mentioned, Brett, uh, the prime minister has been uh, called out for his reaction to this and the fact that he's made any comment whatsoever. I wonder how much of Justin Trudeau's response was a reaction to Alvin Baptiste calling for some sort of action by the federal government. Another voice that you may have been hearing over the weekend and throughout the trial was Jade Tutusis is uh, Colton Bushy's cousin. We hope for justice for Colton. However, we did not see it. We did not feel it throughout this entire process. We will fight for an appeal. We will fight for an appeal and answers to all the racism that my family has experienced from the day that Colton was shot until the jury delivered the verdict of not guilty. We will not stop our pursuit for justice. We will stand here and honor my late brother, my family member, my friend, Colton Bushy. A lot of the anger uh, began the night of, of the death of Colton Bushy when RCMP, uh, up to a dozen officers, essentially stormed uh, the Baptiste household. And if you want an account of that, there's a, a fantastic Globe and Mail article that goes through and chronologicalizes what happens that nice night and how RCMP uh, arrived at the Baptiste home and how they handled things. And I, and, and I think that that got things off to a very bad start, a very poor start in terms of the relationship between the prosecutors between RCMP and the Bushy family. Here's Chris Murphy. He's a Bushy family lawyer. We will be going to Parliament Hill this month to describe the systemic injustices that this case has revealed. But for now, I ask that you trust that Colton's family has legitimate reasons for these deeply held beliefs. So the other part of the discussion, will there be an appeal? Here, here is Bill Berg. He's the Crown Prosecutor in this case. We will be going to Parliament Hill this month to describe the systemic injustices that this case has revealed. But for now, I ask that you trust that Colton's family has legitimate reasons for these deeply held beliefs. You all heard the verdict of the jury and the as we who watched them work, uh, we know they put a lot into it. Uh, they didn't take this lightly at all, and we respect their verdict. We will take a look at the verdict, and we will consider our position. I'm Global News Weather future. Specialist, Adrian. It was a tough time for everyone, including the jury. You could see their faces when they came in. There was uh, a lot of emotion there. You got Chris Murphy's uh, commentary twice there. That was Bill Berg, Crown Prosecutor for the province of Saskatchewan. And this from uh, Lori Nicotine. She was described, she described herself as a Bushy supporter. And, uh... We are sorry, Colton. We tried. But now the world knows. The world knows. Now the Prime Minister spoke about this as we mentioned he did 
weigh in on this while he was in Los Angeles. He had this reaction. I know I speak on behalf of millions of Canadians when uh, I say that our hearts go out to uh, Colton Bushy's family, uh, his mom Debbie, uh, his friends, uh, and the entire community. I'm not going to comment on the process that led us to this point today, uh, but I am going to say we have come to this point as a country uh, far too many times. And then that reaction prompted this reaction from lawyer Tom Engel, who says while his comment, the Prime Minister's comments weren't explicitly criticizing the verdict, it could be perceived that way. To me, that's way offside for politicians to to comment like that. There has to be a clear separation between the political arm of the state and the judiciary or the justice system. Getting lots of feedback at 204-780-6868 via text, and we appreciate that feedback. And you can also email gmac at cjob.com or brett at cjob.com. A lot of that feedback surrounds the idea of being able to protect your property, to protect yourself, to protect your family. And a lot of people suggesting, a lot of comments suggesting, and this is not uncommon in quotation marks, justice was served on that front. So keep the conversation coming. It's a divisive topic. It's emotional. That's why we're sharing uh, the story with you this morning, because uh, there is lots of conversation around this on all sides. Federal politicians don't get mat leave. We didn't know that until this morning. We learned that courtesy of the global news program, The West Block, which aired yesterday. Host Vashi Capellos interviewing Manitoban member of Parliament Nikki Ashton in Ottawa. And they talked about Ashton being a new mom, changes that need to come to Parliament Hill on that front, and they discussed sexual harassment. So here is a portion of that conversation. I guess I should start off by saying congratulations. So you're a new mom of twins. Tell mm. me about uh, tell me about it and how they're doing. And mm-hmm. Uh, well, it is intense, you know. I, uh, they were born on Halloween, so just uh, we're we're about three months in now, and uh, they're doing very well. Um, they are uh, right into the the sort of uh, uh, political work and public work. They went to their, their first public <laughs> event when they were 11 days old. Oh my God! Uh, so and they've they've hit the road uh, in the constituency with me. They've come to office hours. In fact, more people come to see the twins than me now uh, back home. And uh, just recently, they came to uh, Parliament as it as it opened, uh, and it's very important. For for me to share this work and this life with my kids. Uh, but obviously there's some major challenges as well and, and, and they definitely need to be addressed so that we can encourage and support uh, particularly women and, and moms, uh, new moms I would say, uh, that uh, that want to do political work as well. I remember when I was tweeting about this story, and not just you, but there's a minister who's pregnant, etc. Um, I got a lot of sort of negative reaction to the idea of mat leave and a lot of people saying, well they chose this, we're paying them to represent us there, why should they get any time off? And I'm wondering what you think of that reaction and what your response to it would be. Mm-hmm. First off, I'd say that, that Parliament and, and the system around it was, was primarily designed by uh, old white men, uh, entirely designed by old white men. And so, so the structures uh, uh, that exist uh, you know, certainly fit into that frame. If we want a Parliament that truly reflects the, reflects the population, uh, including women, including racialized folks, Indigenous peoples, people living with disabilities, uh, we need to be prepared to uh, make adjustments. So how do we make 
make Parliament more uh, uh, inclusive of women, for example, it is recognizing the need for uh, some sort of parental leave. And it might not, it might not look the same as, as uh, the, the broader parental leave. Um, absolutely, we, it has to be uh, different. Uh, but, but let's explore it. When we talk about women in politics, lately especially, we're, we're, there's another big subject that we're talking about, that is sexual harassment, sexual misconduct. How have you been processing what we've seen unfold? Uh, you know, there's no question that sexual harassment is rampant in, uh, uh, you know, on the political scene. Uh, you know, when, when have you, you come have, across uh, it in any way, shape, or form? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think any uh, woman, particularly young woman, that's been doing this uh, this work for any length of time, uh, is you know, will have will have experienced it. And again, that is Global News, Vashi Capellos from the West Block in conversation with a Manitoban member of parliament, Nikki Ashton. You can see that entire interview at globalnews.ca. Couldn't have Nikki Ashton just left it at men? Did she have to say old white men? Even old men. Was the old white men really necessary in her comment? I think it lends a lack of credibility and people who would normally be tuned in to what she's trying to say and what she's trying to fix and what she's trying to, to change. I might otherwise just go, you know what, I'm not interested in listening right now. Just, you know, I'm not going to tell her how to politic, but pro tip, you know, it's not always about old white men, Nikki Ashton. One, two, three. Time now for Three Things with Shanalee Vidal, and it is Three Things You May Have Missed Over the Weekend. Good morning, Shanalee. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Shanalee. Welcome back. Thank you. I, I should have included myself as a thing you might have missed over the weekend <laughs> since I, I. it seems like I've been away for... You were MIA? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to have you back. Thank you. So yeah, three things you might have missed over the weekend. And to start off, we're going to talk about the Olympics. Of course, there's been so much talk. Canada's been doing really well. We have seven medals right now. We're just behind Norway for total medal counts. They have eight so, and we're in second place overall. We're coming for you, Norway. <laughs> I think so. So, yeah, Canada, uh, we have a bronze, four silver, and two gold. And that first gold medal came from the team figure skating competition. Atessa Virtue and Scott Moore won the ice dance segment of the event. But there was also a lot of attention uh, that went to the team that came in ninth place. Ninth place ninth teams place. don't get a lot of attention. Yeah, there were ten. There were ten teams competing. What uh, was the disaster <laughs> that put them in the spotlight? Well, you know, it's and this team was it was South Korea featuring Yura Min and Alexander Gamblin. So essentially, I, and I, I'm sorry we have to be using this term, but I, there's no other term for it. Uh, Yuri's out. Yura's outfit suffered a wardrobe malfunction. Oh. Uh-huh. And and it was handled so gracefully, and so I guess the her outfit it had come undone at the back, and then if the team had stuck to their planned routine with her sticking her arms up, surely disaster and embarrassment would have just befallen them, and it caused Yuri's top to to come down. So the team actually improvised and changed them. up their routine, Fabulous. and so that Yuri so that Yuri wouldn't have to raise her arms, and Alexander also held her outfit to kind of keep it in, in place. So, I mean, they probably, they might have done better had they been able to stick to the original routine. But I, I you know, I got to commend them for handling it with such class. I mean, I can't imagine if something like that would have happened to me. Like, how, what do you do? How do you deal with it? How do you not panic? Yeah, you know, especially at the Olympics to, to work so hard and, and then to have something so trivial, really. Exactly. 
Yeah. A faulty button, hook, zipper, who knows? I don't even know what it was, but uh, a lot of grace was exhibited in terms of how they handled that. Absolutely. And I bet, Outstanding. I bet she's going to make sure she's probably sewn into her costumes I think from now on. That's probably a given, but I, I suspect that these two will garner uh, plenty of attention uh, in the coming weeks for, oh. for how they handled this. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Okay. What's number two? Number two. This one's funny. Okay. You know, there's always talk about uh, lords in France. That's the place where they say, oh, all these miracles happen. And Madonna named her her firstborn child after that place. Oh. And so now a French bishop has attributed a attributed a 70th miraculous recovery to divine intervention in Lourdes. Okay. Uh, Ten years ago, a Roman Catholic nun who was an invalid for nearly four decades made a pilgrimage to Lourdes. And she says when she returned home, she heard a voice telling her to remove her leg braces. And suddenly she could walk. Okay. So the shrine in southern France where 150 years ago apparitions of Mary, considered the mother of Jesus, reportedly appeared to a peasant girl, is recognized by the church to be the site of a miraculous cure. All right. Could be, could be not, but wow. it's either uh, way. This woman is walking now. Is she? But she is. She is walking now. That's so fabulous. Yeah. And now the third thing. This one is for all the royal watchers. <laughs> I'm getting suckered into this. You Let are. me tell you, my my affection for Meghan Markle is really making it difficult for me to ignore the royals right now. And if you can tell, I'm seething about it because <laughs> I don't want to be interested. I, I, I think there's going to be a there's going to be a group uh, wa- uh, royal wedding watch party. I, I think I, coming. I know. Huh? I know. I, I, I put it on Netflix. Maybe I'll watch it. When she comes down the aisle, do you think they'll play the Suits theme song? <laughs> I would say there's very little chance of that, but I wouldn't bet against it entirely. Well, you know, you never know. Um, so, anyways, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have released more details about their May 19th wedding. That's a Saturday, by the way, for, you know, planning your royal watching events. That's May long events. weekend here in Canada, by oh, the way. Oh, that's, that's so. good to know. So, okay, the event is going to include a carriage ride through Windsor. And the couple is going to marry at noon at St. George's Cathedral. It's a 15th century church on the grounds of Windsor Castle. And it's long been the backdrop of choice for many royal occasions. Kensington Palace says the couple is hugely grateful for the many good wishes they received. And they hope the carriage ride will give the general public a chance to share the day. I'm actually, I'm excited about this. I've, I haven't been like a crazy royal watcher. I've been, you know, interested. And, and, and I got to see the, um, I got to see Prince William and Kate when they did their trip to Yellowknife and followed them oh, along really? with the media. Yeah, oh, and the, the British media. Not so polite, I found out. Oh, yeah, they're, 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 they're very I, mean towards Canada, got, actually. I almost got hit from, with a few a few large cameras, actually, to get my spot. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch, especially since it's like it's like a, a second wedding, kind of like, you know, there was all the pomp and circumstance for William and Kate's wedding, you know, because, you know, he's the heir. And, and so, do you, I don't know if you, you saw Charles and Camille's wedding, and the folk, it was wonderful because the focus was on the hats. And all of the commentators were all talking about the hats. They didn't care about the wedding so right. much, but it was just all about the hats, the fashion. And it was more lighthearted. And so I, I don't want necessarily think it's going to be that lighthearted, but just a bit more a bit more fun and a bit more at ease. Maybe more fan-friendly, watcher-friendly. Exactly, exactly. Not so, not so stuffy, perhaps. Exactly. 
Exactly. All right. Well, uh, I, I'm not committing to watching this yet. So <laughs> check with me back and check back in May. We'll wear you down. And I keep seeing ads for Meghan Markle in some TV movie. Oh, I don't know. That if was made like seven years ago. Is that, that they, what it was? I don't know. It looks like it's from yeah. some time ago. I've seen the commercials as well, and I'm going, oh boy. I I hope she has no skeletons in her closet. It's not, it's not one of those on movies where tape. she uh, she she goes somewhere in Europe and falls in love with the prince. Uh, who knows? It could be something like that. We'll see. I, I, but I'm sure Greg will report it, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hallmark special doesn't matter. <laughs> Chandelier Vidal, thank you very much. Greg Mackling and Brett McGarry with you until 10 o'clock this morning. Then Jeff Courier will step into the studio and keep you company until e, uh, 1 o'clock this afternoon. And Hal Anderson's back. Just visiting with Hal out in the newsroom. He'll be back from 1 till 4 this afternoon. Then it's Julian Richard from 4 till 7 on the news. An all-white jury has acquitted Gerald Stanley in the 2016 death of Colton Bushy. As we've been discussing this morning, Brett, the verdict has ignited outrage across Canada with rallies taking place in various cities, including here in Winnipeg. Global Saskatoon's Ryan Kessler joins us now live on 680 CJOB with more on this story. Uh, Ryan, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So I think where we would like to start with this uh, is the fact that this is a trial that many Canadians probably were not following and are probably following a little bit more closely now due to the reaction to the verdict. So could you maybe just give us a quick kind of history lesson? What what happened? Uh, what was the incident that uh, that led to uh, ultimately to Colton's death and then the trial? Yeah, absolutely, Brett. And I'll start by saying that I, I completely agree. Initially, we looked at this story as if it were a story that kind of made people in Saskatchewan take a look in the mirror. But I think it's now having that impact on people across Canada. Basically, what happened was in August 2016, there were a group of young people from the Red Pheasant First Nation. It's about in 100 kilometers west of Saskatoon. Uh, these people went out uh, drinking and swimming in a nearby river. At some point, they got a flat tire, and at that point, they started driving into different farmyards. And we heard testimony in court that the first farmyard they went to, they tr- they were checking or trying to break into cars. Uh, and then from that point, they drove to another farmyard. That was Gerald Stanley's farm. They enter the farm in their SUV, and there's an altercation that ensues. And eventually, Colton Bushy is shot in the back of the head. And now, of course, the the part that's really so contentious about all of this is that it was a group from a First Nation, and Gerald Stanley is a Caucasian farmer. And, of course, you can see the dynamic that has played out from there. Now, Ryan, did it come out in trial, and and on what side, and, and whose testimony did it come out, or did it not come out that there was an attempt either at theft or at least to uh, get into a vehicle on the Stanley property? And there, we are hearing testimony, or hearing reports anyway, and who testified and on what side with regard to the presence of a shotgun uh, in possession of, of this group of young people, including Colton Bushy. So, yes, there was testimony from people in the car with Colton Bushy that at the first farm they were trying to steal. At the second farm, there's some mixed testimony from people in the car, first of all, saying that at that point they just wanted help. But there was also testimony from Gerald Stanley and his son that people from this vehicle jumped onto a quad, tried to steal the quad, 
And, uh, and yes, there was also uh, part of a rifle in the car, uh, we are told, between Colton Bushy's legs. It was missing a stock uh, because that stock was actually broken at the previous farm, trying to break into a car. It had basically shattered, but the gun itself was still functional. But it's important to point out that the defense did not make the argument of self-defense. The argument that was made was actually that a hang fire had occurred and to anyone who, who knows how guns function, that is essentially the delayed firing of a gun. So you pull a trigger, some time goes by, and then the bullet leaves the chamber. And ultimately, that's the, the crux of the defense's argument, and, uh, and it appears to have worked. And the, so it was the, because we've heard that uh, Stanley says it was an accident that the, the gun was fired. So was it the gunfire happened during some sort of a, a tussle? That's right. So basically what we heard from Gerald Stanley was that he went into his yard carrying a pistol uh, created in Czechoslovakia around the Second World War. So it's an old pistol. He walks into the yard. He fires what he considered two warning shots, takes a couple more steps. Uh, We heard testimony that he had both run or walked. uh, So we don't know the speed and the exact amount of time that elapsed. But he pulls a third shot and nothing comes out. Stanley says that that was his normal procedure to check to see if the gun was empty. He thought he had only loaded two bullets into this pistol. So he pulls the trigger a third time. Nothing comes out. Stanley says he felt like the gun was empty. He goes up to the car, at which point he tries to turn it off with his left hand. Also in his left hand is the magazine of the gun. In his right hand, he says was the gun itself. He gets into some kind of physical interaction with Bushy. It was never really clear what that entailed. And then that's the point where the gun goes off. Ryan Kessler, Global News Saskatoon, joining us this morning. And Ryan, to what extent was the conversation around gun laws involved in this trial and the idea of whether or not Gerald Stanley was in a legal, had legal standing to have this weapon in his possession and to have ammunition in this weapon in the first place? Well, we know that the the defense basically acknowledged the fact that in Canada, there is not a law that says you're allowed to arm yourself to protect your property. That is a law that is common in the United States, uh, often referred to as the stand your ground law. But in Canada, that's not permitted. But what the defense did state was that Stanley acted in a reasonable way by firing the first two warning shots. And I think that was even conceded by the Crown that to fire two warning shots is a reasonable action. But the defense also said that because it was an accident, he was acting within his own legal right to be carrying that gun and to be holding it at the time. However, there were also uh, charges laid against Stanley that have not yet been dealt with in regards to the safe storage of a firearm. So that is something that would likely just end up being a fine if he is found guilty of it. But that's really the only conversation that's been had about the legal use of a firearm. Yeah, because we've been getting text messages this morning from people saying, isn't it illegal to have a gun and bullets in the first place? I know that I have a friend who has guns and he does not have ammunition in his home. Uh, He has to keep his gun locked up. There has to be a trigger lock on it. Uh, So we were curious about that. So thank you very much for explaining that, Ryan. Also curious to know, one of the the first reactions we got here via text message on Saturday morning was from someone identifying themselves as Indigenous, saying that they were angry at this verdict and it made them 
It made them feel like they wanted to go out and beat up the first white person that they saw. I'm wondering, are you hearing similar reaction in your area? There's no doubt that this has put a wedge between two different groups. And I don't even want to call them two different sides because I wouldn't even consider it that. What is interesting here is that because of the confusion over the high level of property crime in rural Saskatchewan, and I'm sure it's, it's a likely situ- similar situation in Manitoba, the issue here, and I think the issue that even the Bushy family is now looking closer at is not so much the racism that may or may have existed in that area. What they're looking at now is what they would consider the systemic racism, the fact that the defense had the power to turn away any visibly Indigenous people. We didn't hear anything in court to suggest that Stanley was or was not racist. What I think people are starting to turn their attention to is whether or not the system is set up in such a way that Indigenous people are at a disadvantage. And Ryan, I'm not asking you because I expect you're a legal expert or or <laughs> anyone who can answer this. But, you know, the report, you know, an all white jury was it an all white male jury and the conversation around uh, who who should this jury reflect? Should it reflect the community? Should it reflect a jury? You know, we've heard the terminology, a jury of one's peers. Does is that applicable? The, the jury selection process, I think, is uh, a curious one, a curiosity uh, to a lot of people. For sure. And I think there are many different ways to interpret the jury of your peer statement. I spoke to one defense lawyer who's not connected to the case, and he said just that, that he felt that the jury should reflect Stanley's peers, and therefore the jury was selected correctly. But you can also look at the fact that just the, the, the boundaries that were set up to draw people to come for jury duty it went virtually from the Battlefords area all the way north to the Northwest Territories. So is it perhaps a jury of your peers based on the demographic in the area? That might also be the case. So I think there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. And I think the sense that we're getting from the family, also from even the justice minister who's meeting with the Bushy family tomorrow, is that there may be some possible changes that could be made to the jury process. And Ryan, was it in fact an all-white male jury? Well, it's tough, right? Because you can never tell if someone is Indigenous or not. Sometimes people are visibly Indigenous, other times they are not. For instance, if someone is Métis, it can often be very difficult to tell. What I can say is that there were multiple visibly Indigenous people that were turned away. As for the composition of sex, I believe it was seven women and five men. So if anyone's stating that it was all male, that's not correct. All right. Global Saskatoon's Ryan Kessler, thank you so much uh, for giving us uh, uh, a primer on this case. Many of us not really familiar with it until the verdict on Friday. So thank you for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Happy to join you. Mackling and McGarry, Monday morning. That's a lot of M's. Four, if I'm counting correctly, on the fly. One of the most well-known gothic stories, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, was written 200 years ago. In honor of that anniversary, the University of Winnipeg's Department of Theatre and Film presents a stage adaptation 
that is true to the book. Frankenstein starts tomorrow at the Asper Center for Theater and Film on Colony Street, the address 400 Colony. Admission is free, but reservations are recommended. So to tell us more about the production, we're joined by Ari Weinberg, director of Frankenstein at University of Winnipeg, and Dylan Hatcher, performer and University of Winnipeg honors student. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Uh, hello, thanks. So we'll start with you, Dylan. You are the titular character, uh, but you are Victor Frankenstein, correct? I am Victor Frankenstein, yes. A lot of people still mix up the fact that Frankenstein is not the monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's due to a lot of um, adaptations after the novel being like more comedic and stuff, you know, with like the like young Frankenstein and stuff like that. But in the original novel, um, uh, it's it's just Victor Frankenstein, and the creature doesn't actually have a name. So what was Dr. Frankenstein, in fact, up to? For those that think they know, we've already dispelled one popular myth. What was Dr. Frankenstein up to in that laboratory so 200 years ago? What was he up to? Well, um, he, he was an interesting fellow. <laughs> um, he, he used um, electricity and galvanism to reanimate the dead. Um, so he gathered... Um, limbs from charnel houses and kind of brought them together and then use electricity to animate it. It's pretty gross. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a timeless story, right? Oh, and, yes, absolutely. And and one that, that, you know, certainly wasn't telling the future, wasn't a future, but the uh, the detail and the ideas that uh, that Shelley had in terms of, of technology, I think were, were very uh, prognostic. But he, he was he was a future teller. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Something else there. Uh, so Ari, bringing yeah. this show to life, then, uh, given that there is uh, lightning and electricity and all sorts of, uh, we've seen the sets on TV. How much of a effort? How much of an effort had to be put in to do this at a university stage? Uh, so uh, uh, it, that's a really great question. Um, so so we you know don't have filmic. Uh, effects at our disposal because it's a live theater performance. So uh, part of the concept that I used for this is it's an alleyway theater. So audiences are sitting on both sides of the stage to to look in and watch. Oh, and so and then part of it for me, uh, especially in working with students and, and in a theater school setting, was how are we going to use stagecraft and sort of theater magic to make a lot of the the elements of the story come together. So uh, the creature story is quite universal. So I looked back at uh, Greek theater, which you know had choral speaking and was sort of the first forms of theater uh, as a way of uh, of getting an in theatrically to the creature. So we're using a giant animated puppet. I don't want to give too much away, but it's mm-hmm. a really cool sight to see. And so uh, we're using puppetry and choral speaking to sort of find a, a different, a, a stage energy and electricity to bring the creature to life. And when you say choral speaking, what's that? Yeah. So choral speaking is is literally uh, looking at the text and finding ways that that everybody speaks either together or singularly. So um, at moments in the play when the the creature is a, its most human, we'll have one voice doing it. And then as it's experiencing pain or loss or various emotions, other voices will start to speak together and, and in, in unison to sort of help articulate the story of the creature. So would you have had to have watched uh, original or other adaptations? 
adaptations of the story to get an appreciation for the way you're telling it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've seen uh, I've seen a couple of film adaptations, but uh, for me, I went back and I read the I just read the original novel a couple of times. Like I read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, since that's the source material. And part of the thing that I liked about this stage adaptation by a woman named Dorothy Louise is that it actually chronicles Mary Shelley's creation of the novel alongside Victor's creation of the creature. So Mary Shelley is a character in our production. Um, and she was quite the feminist. So it, it's kind of nice in this day and age to have that story sort of wedged in there alongside Victor's. Ari, where uh, can we get tickets for this? Uh, we, You can get tickets at uh, theater.uwinnipeg.ca. Is that yeah. right, Dylan? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. <laughs> okay. And getting into the theater, is uh, it's on Balmoral, yes. even though the address is on Colony. So yes, there's a ramp. folks a heads up <laughs> yeah. there. You have to walk down Balmoral. You'll see a ramp up to the uh, to the Asperson And behind the Rapid the Transit uh, station there, correct? Yep. Okay. All right. You Winnipeg celebrating the bicentennial of Frankenstein with a stage adaptation that runs at the Asper Center for Theater and Film starting tomorrow through the 17th. And we've been speaking with Ari Weinberg, who is the director, and Dylan Hatcher, who plays Victor Frankenstein. Gentlemen, thanks for the chat this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tonight, there will be a screening of a film called A Good Place to Live. It's about the revitalization of the Lord Selkirk Park housing developments. Here's a clip. Lord Selkirk Park, I can say, is a home, is a good place. Like the way it is right now, is good. It's so beautiful to live here. For me, it is, because I've been here over 20, 27 years, and I've seen the changes. There are so many programs at the schools. There's kids all here playing. People are out doing their yard work, barbecuing. We know all each other. Twelve years ago, it wasn't like that. Now it's like... It's so beautiful. If we can create not a solution to poverty, but improve the circumstances of people in a poor community to the extent that we have done in Lord Selkirk Park, it can be done anywhere. That is the voice of Professor Jim Silver. He's a professor of urban and inner city studies at the University of Winnipeg. He's joined in studio along with Asia Oliver, who lives and works in the neighborhood. Uh, Asia, lovely to meet you. Thank you for taking time with us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. And Professor Silver, great to uh, make your acquaintance in person as we've uh, done several interviews over the years on a variety of topics, including urban studies and uh, the redevelopment of Winnipeg over the years. And Professor Silver, talk a little bit about, uh, about Lord Selkirk Park housing development. Back in 2005, but even especially in the 1990s, it was probably the... Uh, in a sense, the worst neighborhood in Winnipeg's inner city. Um, half of the units were empty. People didn't want to live there. People who lived and worked there referred to it as a war zone. Uh, lots of street gang activity, illegal drug activity. People who lived there were afraid to go outside. They would stay uh, inside because safety was a major, major problem. And then in 2005, the North End Community Renewal Corporation got what's called a Comprehensive Community Initiative Grant from the federal government. That was just prior to uh, Harper taking over as prime minister. So the previous uh, federal government had been putting money into safety, but safety to be achieved through social development. So North End Community Renewal Corporation asked me if I would be part of the team and... uh, 
we began to work in Lord Selkirk Park in 2005, and the way we worked was to uh, talk with people in the community, get to know people, earn their trust, develop relationships, and assume that they were the ones that had the answers. They knew what the problems were. They knew what they needed to turn their lives around. So uh, they, first of all, wanted a resource center where they could have a safe space and talk to other adults and so on. So we created a resource center in one of the empty units. Many of the single moms in there, most of them were indigenous women. They would have grade 7, 8, 9, something like that. They wanted to get their grade 12. So we brought in an adult learning center uh, called Kakiao. It offers the mature grade 12, and it is still up and running. It's now graduated more than 90 people with their with their grade 12. Asia is uh, one of them. She graduated this past June with her grade 12. We found that some people uh, weren't quite ready for high school, so we set up a literacy program. The literacy program today is packed. It has a wait list. Uh, you know, these are people whose literacy literacy skills are very low, but they're being improved. They're moving into Kakiao. They're graduating with their grade 12. And then the final piece was a child care center. So we have a terrific child care center that is piloting something called the Abbasidarian model, which is a particular way of doing child care. Uh, the children are thriving. Their language skills are just exploding. Uh, the neighboring school, David Livingston, can identify the kids that have been through uh, uh, the child care center because of their uh, verbal skills. So today, uh, Lord Selkirk Park is full. Um, there are about 60 newcomer families living in there, African Muslim families. They've fully integrated into the community. Uh, it's a happy and healthy community and a much safer community, which was the objective right from the beginning. And Asia, one of the grade 12 graduates last June, is now at the University of Winnipeg. She took one of my courses last fall, got an A in the course. She's a great student and is now back at Kakiao working as the community support worker. Professor Jim Silver is in the studio along with Asia Oliver. And uh, Asia is here to talk about life in the Lord Selkirk Park housing development. Uh, there's a film tonight. It's a screening and discussion will take place featuring Lord Selkirk Park community members, Professor Silver. It happens at the Eckerd uh, Grimade Hall. That is at the University of Winnipeg. It happens from 7 till 9 tonight in Asia. Talk to us. We were just, uh, I was talking typically <laughs> about, you know, growing up in the West End. And, and one of the things about the West End that I loved so much was that we, we had this this idea of one day, you know, moving somewhere else and living somewhere else. And it was okay to talk about that. You don't live in the community anymore, but you had a very positive experience there. Fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. I um, I do not live in the community anymore, but I'm um, actively involved. I work at Kakia Lamon Lacole, which is the adult learning center that Jim had discussed earlier. Um, I'm the community support worker there. And um, yeah, I love the neighborhood. Why did you stay involved? Why did you want to work in the community? Um, when I was attending Kakiao, um, it was really a great place to be. It, the community support that I got from the, the teachers and the students, it, it, was, it was great. And so when I graduated, I was planning on volunteering and, and I just wanted to, to keep in contact with the center and with the school. Um, that was one of my plans. And then the 
the community support worker um, position opened and I applied and I got it. So the reason why I wanted to stay in contact with the community is because um, of how supportive they were of me and, and how much faith they had in me to graduate. And I did. So I wanted to be that person to help other people in the community that were in my position. Talk about how that support has driven you and allowed you to accomplish a lot of your goals. Talk about talk about the that effect of, of having a, a team, having a group of people that are working towards a common goal. It definitely had an impact on my life, a positive impact. Um, after graduating from Kakiao, I um, imply, applied at the U of W and I was enrolled within from June to September. I, I started in September. Um, so just, just having, um, the contact and the resources and, and people saying, Hey, this is available. This is available. You could do this and, and all these doors opening and, um, it, it was great. So I had a lot of support and resources. Professor Silver, a healthy community has that idea of commonality and that availability of whether it's a hockey program, whether it's a library, whether it's a, a program like we're talking about today. And and there is a, a pipeline to let people know that these these services are available. It's a kind of an old world value to a certain extent. I think it is, yeah. And I, I believe strongly in trying to create opportunities for people and you know, I think often uh, people look down upon those who are poor. My experience is if you create opportunities for people who are poor, uh, most will seize those opportunities and then provide some supports, as Asia has been describing in, in her case. She went back uh, to do high school when she was in her mid-30s with four kids. So that's that's a challenge. You need some extra supports. It's a bit different than being a 17-year-old. Um, but creating opportunities, providing supports for people so that they can take advantage of those opportunities. And when you do that, people turn their lives around. New doors open up and then people become productive parts of, uh, of society and themselves live happier lives. Asia's kids are going to end up uh, doing well in school because they see what mom is doing. There's a big ripple effect. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left here, Professor. Have you seen the film yet? Yes. And? Oh, it's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, so it's and not that I'm biased at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's happening tonight at the University of Winnipeg's Eckhart Gramate Hall, 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock, and there will also be, after the film, a discussion featuring members of the community. So, Professor Jim Silver of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg and Asia Oliver, who once lived in Lord Selkirk Park Housing Developments and now continues to work in the community. Thanks for joining us today. Talk about A Good Place to Live, the film that we'll screen tonight. Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry, Chandelier Vidal, I'm Brett McGarry, he's Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB. And then-